contextualization is just the reality of saying we do affirm that there is one gospel for all time. The Bible has one message that is not dynamic and changing or somehow irrelevant in a given time frame or a given context, but is perennially relevant, perennially binding upon us to work out, but that in working it out, we have to work it out in context. the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming and I am your host. Today in our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. I am jumping into today's episode with a special invitation and gifts for you. We are in the season of giving. And I know this means we can be in a state of stress or joy. It seems like there's nothing in between. We're really excited about the idea or we're really stressed out. I know during this time that I need to choose joy most days simply because of the weight and the weariness of our modern life is just simply heavy. I need to turn to Jesus, who is our ultimate gift. He is Emmanuel and he is the one who reorients us. He reorients me. And we remember God's gift to us. And when we remember that, we're actually moved to bless others as well. And this is the posture that I desire for myself. I desire for our Apollos Water team. And I know that's what they want to do as well. Apollos Watered is a nonprofit ministry. And we exist because of the generous gifts from people like you. But we also want to be able to give and be generous in turn, especially during this Advent season. So we have some fun things planned for you. For all of our incredible listeners out there, we have an episode coming that will bless your entire family and hopefully lead you directly into the heart of Emmanuel through the scriptures. Our podcast guests have contributed throughout the year to make this happen. And I know you're going to love it, look for it, ready to drop in just a couple of weeks. Now, if you're on our email list, you're also going to receive a special Advent devotional. It's a short yet poignant look at the season and how our Apollos Watered family experiences joy and tradition. Our goal for this is simply joy and smiles. If you haven't signed up to be a part of our email list, now is the perfect time. The link is actually in the show notes. It's super easy to click the link and get yourself added 30 seconds of your time, and I promise. Another perk of being on our email list is our surprise giving. We are channeling our inner Amazon Prime, and for the month of December, by random drawing, Apollos watered books and merchandise will show up to your house. This is just a small way of us saying thank you to the many people who support us throughout the year. Again, we want to see more smiles, and we want smiles and joy coming your way. Lastly, I want to invite you to join me next week, Monday, December 4th. I'll be there live with a special teaching and Q&A called Step into the Light of Church, Culture, and Christmas. So why should you even show up online with me? I mean, it's another thing to do, and in December of all months. But I think that the weight of the season and all the stress that goes with it, especially within the church, can be lightened. Let's have some fun. 
there is a way to see through and not just look at the critical issues of our culture and the church today. What if you could go about the responsibilities of this season, tend church, and interact with family with a greater sense of joy and purpose? Would you want that? Of course you would. What if the story of God came alive and then refreshed you? What if there was a different way to be in the church, to be a Christian human in this moment with no added guilt or shame? Sound too good? Well, it's not. No, it's not. We're going to talk about it together. So make sure you're on our email list. It's the only way to get to the link to join us. Again, the link is in the show notes, and I can't wait to see you and engage in this together. Our episode today connects with this, by the way. There's a lot of negativity in the world right now. It just is. Just go on the news, man. It's depressing. And it can you can easily get discouraged. It's easy for even Christians to feel like all is lost. Sometimes we look around in confusion, wondering how it is that we got here. We may be tempted to compromise on what we believe, maybe even wonder if the answers that we've always been given are actually true, because no one seems to respond. We're here to tell you that there is hope, but it requires new ways of thinking, a new perspective, and at least new ways for most of us. Today, I am talking with former missionary and professor of missions and theology, Matthew Bennett, about his new book, Hope for American Evangelicals. If you are one of our American listeners, then this will especially be applicable for you, but not just the Americans. As my conversation explores, Western culture is everywhere right now, and its impact is worldwide. Matthew's experiences in North Africa and the Middle East have provided him with important insight into how today's cultural moment should actually be one of hope, not defeat for evangelicals. Yes, we have work to do to get our house in order, but all is not lost. There is hope. Now, let's get to my conversation with Matthew Bennett. Happy listening. Matt Bennett, welcome to Apollo's Water. Thank you, Travis. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I am delighted to have a conversation today because we're going to be talking about your book, Hope for American Evangelicals, but about my guy, Leslie Newbegin. But before we get to that, are you ready for the Fast Five? I am ready. Yes, bring it on. Okay, so you're an admitted Chicago Bulls fan. Who is the best mm-hmm. Chicago Bulls player of all time, not named Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen? Ooh, not Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen. Well, um, boy. Steve Kerr. <laughs> I met him once, actually. Did you really? All I right. did when he played for the Cavaliers before he was. He was like a nice the, guy. Yeah. It, funny. <laughs> Lebanon, Middle East, actually. Yeah. You knew that he grew. I mean, that's where his dad was. That's where his dad was killed. Yeah. But okay. it's a it's it's very few people would pick Steve Kerr. as the I best. mean, I was going to go with our, you know, our representative to North Carolina with Dennis Rodman or uh, North Korea with Dennis Rodman. But I, I thought I'd be a little more tame. Not even Derrick Rose, not any well, of those guys. Yeah. I was overseas during his his era, so. Oh, uh, okay. Okay, yeah. that's all right. How about this one? Number two, you served as a missionary to North Africa. While there, the food you missed most was what and why? Oof. Man, all of the street food. Um, I'd say shawarma, probably. Uh, no, I mean, when because... you were when you were there, what did you miss from America? Oh, oh, man. Honestly, not much. Not so, much. But there were a lot of options. Shawarma so sh- would be what I missed today. Yeah. 
so you would you would be the adventurous one and have the street food yeah i mean what better way to you know kind of curate the the intestines uh, different germs you need yeah, well there you go yeah <laughs> we'll just get visceral yeah <laughs> that was one of the rules that i've always had when i travel don't eat street food hmm. well if you're traveling short term yeah but if you can you know develop some resistance to those things then you're never at a loss for food so when you go back do you do you have the shawarma oh yeah yeah uh-huh. oh. All right. I've never had. I, I got to think if I've had shawarma. It's been a long time. Do you get any shawarma yeah. in the in the Midwest? Uh, there's actually quite a few places. There's a, a number of Middle Eastern communities in Columbus, which is not too far from us. And there's a, a handful of Lebanese and um, hmm. I think uh, Israeli uh, restaurants that will will do pretty decent shawarma. It doesn't have the outside, you know eat baking in uh, to the meat hanging out with flies and stuff that you you know really seasons it nicely in the middle east but uh yeah it's still it's all right Uh, all right here's the next question because as you mentioned in the book you learned arabic being a six foot three caucasian guy in the middle east where the average height is what five five is that what you said they might they might push five seven or something but yeah five seven okay so you're tall guy but speak arabic now, I always love different languages because every language has words that are just funny to hear. English has a ton of them. Mm. But what's the funniest word that you learned in Arabic? Ooh. Well, I mean, there's a lot of them that are basically cuss words uh, that you have to use pretty regularly. So, I mean, if you were to, I, I don't know what we're allowed to say on, on this, <laughs> but if you, were, <laughs> if you were to encourage someone to think uh, it would be basically dropping the f bomb on them. So, oh, really? Yeah. So there's oh, a lot of goodness. yeah. There's a lot of callousing that has happened to those sounds as they don't mean the same thing for me any longer uh, in this context okay. because of having to use them in another language. Did you have to? Did you? Uh, that's the hard part. Whenever you learn a language, because you don't know what the 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 the, the wrong words are. Yeah. Those those cuss words that you said, did you find sure. yourself saying this new word and everybody's looking at you like, oh, that's not appropriate. That's not the say. Did you ever that? Uh, I didn't, but I definitely heard a number of stories. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, oh, maybe maybe the closest example is we had a Christian, um, a believer who was one of our Arabic teachers. And at one point we asked them, you know, what's the what's the Arabic word for a lot of the devout Muslim community will, especially the males will have like a darkened spot on their forehead from when they pray that there's a a callus that develops. And we got the word from our Christian friend as to what that's, what that's called. And then later on, I was out in the street and having conversations with my Muslim friends and not, not thinking about it. And the topic came up and I used that word and it turned out that the word I was given was sort of the, derogatory like the the mocking word that actually means like a raisin um and so it's kind of a dismissive way of referring to it and so i offended this guy but then had to walk it back and be like i I don't have another word for it sorry (laughs) (laughs) language is very complicated how long did it take you to learn arabic i mean that's a at what point will i have learned arabic That's (laughs) that's a long question but the lord was kind and in terms of like testing, testing out at the required levels. I think I'd made it to the superior level in two and a half years or so, but it was, 
that was uh, with the kindness of the Lord. And even being told that I had reached superior level, it was almost laughable knowing how many gaps in my language ability I, I still had. So, mm. How long were you in the Middle East? Somewhere around seven years, six and seven. a half, seven years. A long time to learn a language. I mean, that's yeah. it's not easy. That's not easy. But well, we, being... we started out in Jordan and okay. uh, then transitioned into Egypt. And they tried to encourage us by saying, it's only like the thousand most common words that are going to change when you go from Jordanian Arabic to Egyptian. And to that, I respond, I don't know if I know a thousand words in English, let alone in Arabic. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the next question. Being in the Middle East... I always love to ask this of people who've lived in different cultures. What is the funniest cross-cultural experience that you've ever had? Oh man. That's a, that's a tough one. There has to be There's so a, many. There really are. And some of them are just so nuanced that it's funny to people immersed in it, that it wouldn't really probably translate to necessarily everybody on the podcast. I think just genuinely the repeated conversations that you have with people where they are keyed in more to some of the cultural things and media in a, in the U S than we were yeah. like, um, they, they love fast and the furious movies. And so when was it Paul Walker, is that the yeah, main yeah, character from those? He died. And like, I had people coming out and consoling me. Kind of saying like we are so sorry for this this worldwide loss but i know you feel it really acutely i was like i, I mean i saw the first movie but this isn't <laughs> every every loss is sad but this is really hitting home um and so they were they ended up being keyed into pop culture things maybe more than i was wow those are always surprising to me but you you just failed to realize how global the culture has become yeah especially yeah. with the dissemination of movies which which actually creates a lot of bridges and opportunities for the gospel itself. It does. It does. If you, if you can tap into it, but that's another, another conversation. Here's your last question of the past five. If you could write your missionary biography, your autobiography, what would you title it and why? Hmm. I think I would title it a common task. Oh. And I was actually just talking to my wife about this saying, you know, if I could die, having communicated one message to American pastors about missions, it would be that the preparation of missionaries is not something outside of your wheelhouse. And that if you are making disciple makers who have a grasp of the gospel and have practice in sharing it and who see the importance of the local church as the multifaceted body of multi-gifted believers who are gathering in worship and scattering in mission that's what you need to do to prepare missionaries there will be some contextual elements that they will take on as they explore the specifics but don't buy the line that somehow you have to outsource the preparation of missionaries because somehow the task is different um, just because you use your passport to get there that's a very good perspective, which is a great segue into talking about your book, which I'm delighted to be able to chat about. Hope for American Evangelicals, a missionary perspective on restoring our broken house. What caught me about the book, and we had a little conversation about this in our pre-show, was that you mentioned Leslie Newbegin, something that I have found that uh, Newbegin is starting to really be disseminated over a wide variety of people because they're seeing the importance of Newbegin in the midst of this 
missionary moment, I would say, of our contemporary society is it's become much more pluralistic. But what, what, why did you feel this book? I mean, why did you call it Hope for American Evangelicals, which I thought was very interesting and intriguing as a title? And then what made you want to write and communicate this? Because it seems like you're communicating and writing to those in ministry, although it's it's almost like an introductory level to Newbegin. Yeah. What was so your reason behind putting this together? There's a host of different things. I think uh, sort of just autobiographically, we were not gone from the U.S. for a really long period of time. I mean, less than seven years. And being outside of the U.S. today is very different than being outside of the U.S. 50 years ago because there's still connectivity. But even so, we left in 2011 and uh, came back in 2017. And that span of time had really created some dynamic shifts in not only the broader culture and political environment, but also within the church as people were starting to ask in some ways, how did we get here and how do we respond? And there were a variety of options being offered in terms of what that response might look like that uh, didn't strike me as, uh, as maybe helpful or fruitful. And thinking about what it had been like to rub shoulders with brothers and sisters who lived in contexts where they had never known some of the um, protective elements of the government, or they had never known a, a warm embrace by the broader culture and yet still persisted in faithful living out of the gospel. That perspective coming back and looking at some of my brothers and sisters who thought that if we don't have this embrace by the culture, if we don't have the approval uh, that perhaps we have enjoyed in previous generations, that somehow the church will not be able to function. And just trying to come back with a something of a lens of saying, let's let's not panic here, but let's consider what does it look like to look at our context, not as the enemy, but rather as a missionary might look at it and utilize some of the tools that we had been trained in and needing to employ in our missionary context, realizing that they were equally as helpful, uh, perhaps back at home. Mm. As you're talking about this, you give this metaphor of, as you mentioned here, the restoring of our broken house, and you break this down and you use different rooms as a picture of kind of evangelicalism in America. And you talk about the house that you grew up in and use it as a metaphor for understanding the malaise of our contemporary church starting with the home itself, and then the neighborhood exists, and it relates to the topic of contextualization. I find that there's still a lot of confusion among many on what exactly contextualization is. Why? What is it, and why is it so important for us today? Yeah, yeah. I think that one of the things that has convicted me most, like, you know, you think in terms of lines or sentences that you've read that just have a residual impact on your life. One of those lines for me was reading um, Andrew Walls, I believe it was, talking about how he had um, been teaching on uh, theology in a global context at some sort of a multinational forum. And he was being widely knowledgeable of some of the different trends in different parts of the world, um, was speaking about, you know, here are our theological convictions, and here's African theology. Here's 
Russian theology. Here's South American theology. And he was approached afterwards by somebody from one of these contexts. And the question that he was presented with was, why is it that when you talk about your theology, you call it theology? But when you talk about my theology, you call it African theology. And he unpacked his own reflections on that and uh, kind of drew out the point that, you know, we are all taking the scriptures, the unchanging message of the Bible, the gospel, and its, uh, its binding injunctions upon us. And we are responding to them in contexts such that we are producing something that is a, as we work out our theology, hopefully something that is faithful to the scriptures that do not change, but which in its formation, in its language to articulate it, and in the forms that it's going to express itself in, might have some variance across different cultures. And so for us to then say that our thing is somehow acontextual, and doesn't have any of those residual elements that have been shaped by the language we use, by the things that we are responding to in our culture to fortify certain convictions biblically against maybe some of the prevailing trends in broader society. Well, those things might be slightly different in a different context where the responses are going to be different. The language is going to be different. The expected forms of music and, and things like that are going to express themselves differently. And so in some ways, I think contextualization is just the reality of saying we do affirm that there is one gospel for all time. The Bible has one message that is not dynamic and changing or somehow irrelevant in a given time frame or a given context, but is perennially relevant, perennially binding upon us to work out, but that in working it out, we have to work it out in context. And so those contextual responses need to be sensitive to the, the context in which they're happening. And so if my neighbor 50 years ago was wrestling through issues of, you know, science seeming to disprove the idea of a creator God. And so their, their pinch point for understanding the gospel starts with the relationship between science and then evolutionary materialistic view of the world versus something that is, uh, you know, revelatory. And there's a creator um, who has stood behind it. Well, my conversation, my evangelism is going to be shaped in a slightly different way to meet them at the point of, of pinch, a point where they're diverging from a biblical worldview. But if over time, my neighbor is now less concerned, perhaps with the ideas of how does science relate to faith, and they're more concerned with some of the personal identity and individual autonomy and things like that. I need to be sensitive to where are they seeing the gospel as something incredible so that I can meet them at that place. And if I'm not sensitive to that, I might be talking about, you know, how Genesis does articulate a creator God, which is rationally connected to our observations of the world and things like that when their pinch point or their point of concern is something actually different. And so the suggestion is if you were going in as a missionary to a brand new culture, you would be asking all these questions. Mm -hmm. But if you've lived in a place for three decades and you just assume that your neighbors have the same concerns or problems or points of divergence with biblical teaching as they did 30 years ago when you first moved in, the reality is you probably need to go back and ask some of those questions afresh to say, 
how do I bring the gospel to my neighbor and meet them at a place where they're saying, that's incredible, that's not for me, but instead to manifest it in ways that they would see as beautiful and compelling. That's the challenge, isn't it? Where we see a lot of our people ministering off of game plans from 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, we've talked about Billy Graham a lot on the show, and we, we've had a lot of admiration. But the cultural topography has shifted, not that the message has shifted. And we're trying to figure out how to find those connecting points. He understood the connecting points of his generation. But the culture has shifted so much, culturally speaking, that it makes it much more difficult or a challenge to to share not again not that the message has changed but what is that that bridge or that magnetic point that we're drawing to and you you do this by helping us to see through the missionary lens and you did use the house as a metaphor you mentioned as i said at the onset the the neighborhood this need for contextualization but you move into the dining room which i thought was very fascinating the fact that you brought out the dining room knowing how much Eating is actually this idea of crossing barriers and boundaries and practicing hospitality, but you use that as a means of discussing diverse ministry as an embodied apologetic to our world. Why is diverse ministry an embodied apologetic to the world today? Yeah, well, I mean, when you see people who you would not otherwise expect gathering together under a common banner or for a common purpose, or even just in a common place, it causes you to stop and say, what is it that's drawing these people to this place? If from an outside observer's perspective, there's nothing that would unify these people in the places they come from, the, you know, the color of their skin, the preferences of their subculture, and yet they find themselves voluntarily occupying the same space, then there is something that causes you to stop and wonder and say, what is it that's drawing them together? Man, at this cultural moment, I I think we as a church are at a wild advantage because we would say that the, the breakdown of fellowship across racial lines, especially if, if it is driven by racism is an example and an expression of something that we would identify as sinful that, Racism is sinful, and we would affirm that. And our culture is recognizing right now that there's something wrong with racism. It's actually a very rare thing when you think about it, that the culture is agreeing with the church about something that would be an answer to the question and what is wrong. So rather than for the culture's perspective, and I'm, I'm using the culture in a general know, sense, yeah. air quotes sort of way, you know, those who would be outside of the church who are identifying something as wrong that we would say is a consequence of sin, the the broader culture is left without real resources to hope for some sort of a solution. I mean, there's all sorts of proposals of external ways to bring about justice, but there's a an attempt to create a unity that the the broader world doesn't have the resources to assume actually does fundamentally exist. In contrast to that, the Church of Jesus Christ is a group of people who, from across all demographic spaces, have a common faith that does knit them into a common family, weds them into a common vine, and therefore we actually say that ontologically, if I share the faith in the gospel with a brother who is from a wildly different context, 
we actually have an ontological unity that if there's division between us, we actually have a hope for creating or manifesting that unity rather than having to figure out how do we cobble something together that really we don't know if it's even going to work out. We actually have the conviction that we're working from a fundamental unity towards that unity. And as we do that, we actually have the opportunity then to show the watching world who senses this is wrong, that we've got something that they don't have in a unity in Christ that actually gives us hope to see reconciliation. How have you seen that worked out in a good way? I mean, we can easily point to where that's not happening on the ground, where the church is the most segregated place on a Sunday morning, but we're seeing a movement away. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book was how you encountered a professor who basically said that multi-ethnic church was a fad. And you, you talk about the homogeneous unit principle, which we've talked about quite a bit on this show, because we say that it's been detrimental and actually really harmed the church's witness while it's increased numerically it's not it's lacked the john 17 understanding of bringing the unity that is so essential for the world to see in the midst of this world because as i actually had this talk to me a few weeks ago where they were talking about the difference between a two-chapter gospel and a four-chapter gospel i don't know if you've read this tim keller's talked about this where he said that he talks more about movement. There's creation, there's the fall, redemption, consummation. We're removed to the end of the age. But many of us have focused more on the two chapter, where it's the, the fall, redemption. We don't see the full story of that unity or that consummation aspect where we're working this out to show the reality of Christ's presence, embodying the kingdom, which again, you talk about as a sign, uh, a signpost out in the world. How do we help then people move to that type of reality where it's being worked out on the ground. And it's not just about numbers, getting people in the stands, but it's really representation of the community that you live in, where we're working this out and all of its complexities show the reality of Christ saving knowledge. That's a lot. Yeah. I know one question. Yeah. Sorry to overload you with that. <laughs> yeah. There's there's well, one me, question. Just listen to the last yeah. 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me address the first, the first sure. part of saying, where have I seen it work out well? And this is actually something I think I include in the the chapter that the most beautiful place I've seen this work out is on the mission field when I got to teach a church planting class to a sort of under the radar Bible school that had um, people who were students coming from a Christian background, some of whom were coming from like the Coptic church, but who had seen the gospel for what it is and were true born again believers. And then others were coming from Protestant backgrounds where they were raised in the church and had a grasp of the gospel and were not the majority Christian population, but were a part of a, a minority Christian population. And then there was also a contingent of former Muslims who had come to faith. And in a place like Egypt, where for 1400 years, the Christian population has been oppressed and persecuted uh, by the, uh, the Muslim majority. And every church that you talk to has some sort of a story that they can retell of some uh, Muslim who professed false faith integrated into the church and then caused disruption or uh, caused further persecution for them. There's great historical reasons for distrust, animosity, and a sense of uh, wanting to keep, keep as much distance as possible. And yet in that room, You had people who, some of whom were even connected to government officials who could have been responsible for some of the policies that were discriminating or bringing persecution to the the families of the people who were 
from the Christian background, but they were sitting together under scripture, considering what would it look like for us to plant churches here in a biblically faithful sort of way together. And for me, that was that stood in wild contrast to some of what we had been trained in that was following homogeneous unit principle policies of saying, look, you're just going to slow things down if you try to create a a church where you're bringing together former Muslims and former Copts and former Protestant in name only believers into the same place. If you try to do that, you're bringing in so much baggage, it's just going to move so slowly. Just start a Muslim background church and let that be isolated from the Christian background church. And then maybe sometime in the future, they can figure out how to mend those fences. But right now, speed is the most important thing. And from my vantage point, to sit in that room and see the beauty of the gospel reconciling persecutor and persecuted under a common mission to say, let's lift the name of Christ high in this place, even if it's going to be costly, even if it's going to be risky because the church that is going to prevail against the gates of hell and that church knows no demographic distinctions. Um, that was, to me, such a compelling and beautiful picture of how this could be. But it wasn't something that happened at this high level of, you know, figuring out how do we nationally make Christians and Muslims get along better. It wasn't policies at a, a governmental level that were the first port of call for this group, but rather it was the relationships of the person in front of them that they had to work through some stuff. They had to work through some distrust, but they did so under scripture and in conversation. And so to your second part of your, your question, how do we do that? I think it really does start not with discussing some of the big hot button issues, you know, whether it's uh, critical race theory type things that are everybody's hot and bothered over, you know, how to, how to deal with that and whether to see it as a tool to be used or whether to reject it out of hand because of, you know, Marxist underpinnings, like don't, don't deal on these philosophical levels, deal on them on the relational levels. Invite somebody at church this Sunday over that lives in another part of town, somebody who doesn't look like you. Invite yourself to their house and just try to start making sure that there is an intentionality to getting to know the people that you don't naturally gravitate towards within the church, because that sort of a fabric relationally is going to uh, sustain some change uh, on a more broad level. Uh, but it's also going to manifest more beautifully the fact that it really is only the gospel that can solve some of these problems that society is seeing and that we would confirm. Yeah, that's that's broken. That's a consequence of sin. But there's an answer. How do we help people to see that when the churches just seem to be they they don't see it as a part of the gospel itself? Now, you also differentiate between the effect of the gospel and the effect of the gospel itself. Right. How do we help people to see that? When many of the examples that we have within our larger churches, and it's not all, but across the board, it's just not valued. It, it's not seen as a part of it because for them, it's that two-chapter gospel that I was referring to. Get him in the door. Get him saved. Let's get him in some type of discipleship. It seems like this is superfluous or an extra, a bonus. How do we help them to see that this is actually pretty essential for showing the reality of what the gospel is? I mean, it's an effect, but it's validating what the gospel is. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, even just the proposal of referring to this 
as an embodied apologetic is trying to tap into a contextual awareness of what people value at this point mm -hmm. and to be able to say if you value mission if you would value the advance of the gospel if you value the defense of the gospel in the space that you inhabit then wouldn't you want to pursue this sort of a display and in the process of taking something that is valued perhaps by christians who would say you know what we do have our own preferences and birds of a feather do flock together and so why why force integration between churches that already have their own you know, baked in ways of doing things? It's just going to complicate things. We can, we can be on friendly terms, but meet separately at 10 o'clock on Sunday, and that's fine. Well, I think to be able to start with tapping into what is our, our common priority, common value, well, it would be putting on display the, the truth of the gospel. And integration or reconciliation or some of those things I think it's right to say that's not the gospel, but we can't say it's not a proper effect of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so if we lose sight of the gospel being a message about God and what he has done, we are on slippery footing. If we start substituting some of the effects of the gospel for the gospel itself, we miss out. But if we so myopically just look at the gospel message and don't consider its natural effects, then we miss out on what it can do in our midst. And we certainly miss out on one of the ways that it could be best displayed. And so my goal in opposing the value of this sort of a pursuit is to try to grab a hold of something that we would commonly affirm that it's right and good for us to stand in defense of the gospel, to portray the beauty of the gospel and to have a missional vision of the gospel uh, as it will impact our society in one clear way is to be able to recognize that one of the effects should be to create an uncommon unity. What happens as we consider this? What happens when we divorce the gospel from the greater biblical story? And why is the biblical story so essential for our understanding of the gospel today? Well, I think uh, particularly acute in, in our North American society, uh, it would be that we would be prone to hyper-individualize the gospel. And as you're talking about a two-chapter gospel, it's, I was a sinner, I can be saved. Mm -hmm. And now I'm waiting for eternity when I'll avoid hell. I think when we have a fuller reading of the, the testimony of Scripture, yes, the individual must wrestle with the gospel for themselves, must hear, respond, believe, repent. And there is an individual, unavoidable implication of hearing the gospel that, that demands something of individuals. But as soon as that individual professes faith, they're ingrafted into a common head, a common body, a common family, and therefore the communal is unavoidable. And we see that through the whole warp and woof of scripture, that God is a God who is about creating a people for himself. And that people is multinational. That people is uh, one that in Revelation 5 and 7 we see is from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and will one day gather. But in the present, we can manifest uh, that community as we lean into one another's various giftings to, to display the gospel in the place where we are the church in a place and for the places that mm. we can would push us to see. Well, you, you also mentioned that, yes, while we do try to do public faith, we also have to work it out locally. 
Why is it so important to keep the local in perspective as we go about living it out publicly? Pick one reason. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much I can tell. You're just filled with it. You just want to get after it. I can tell it, Matt. You're just ready to go here. And I love it. (laughs) We, We are sold a bill of goods that bigger and broader is better. And everything in our culture, everything in our technological developments is pushing us to see, hey, this new technology promises to get our message broader and farther and wider at the expense of being embodied, proximate and relational. And I think one of the things that we see over and over and over through the pages of scripture is that ministry, discipleship, evangelism and church happen in the dirt and dust of the local environment. and. It's life on life, it's life change, and we can institute policies at a governmental level that can change some of the conditions, but certainly can't change hearts. And heart change happens in relationship where we're covenanted together. And uh, I mean, even the privilege of serving as an elder in my church, and one of the things that we talk about as we interview new members as they're coming in is that we see membership and discipline as uh, as hand and glove but when we think discipline we think of you know kind of the 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 worst extremes the excommunication disfellowship or whatever but the reality is when we talk about discipline we're saying i need a body of believers to point out the places where my flesh is still showing where christ needs to be brought out in me and part of my sanctification is brothers and sisters who are willing to come to me and be like matt we covenanted to display the gospel. And I just have to tell you, brother, like this part of your life, I I don't see the gospel coming through in there. And I need to have the disposition to receive that at this one-on-one level in order that we better communally can manifest the truth that, uh, that we've been called up into the truth of the story of scripture that God has created a redeemed people and his kingdom is advancing despite all evidence to the contrary. And that's not going to happen with some national policy, but it's going to happen when I'm dealing rightly with the people that I'm rubbing shoulders with day in and day out. And that's not to dissuade us from having an involvement in political broader mechanisms. I mean, certainly we can use whatever whatever the Lord affords us um, as a responsibility and opportunity to speak into, but our hope is not in some broad big box microwave fix but it's in the slow work of seeing the gospel take root in every area of my life as i seek to help cultivate that in the lives of those that i've covenanted in relationship with we like to call that here the missio holistic approach i love matthew's perspective it's both hopeful and helpful the changes he saw in American culture in just seven years of being out of the country really helped those of us who have never left to understand the disorientation we sometimes feel, to combat the hopelessness that we can all fall prey to. If you have listened to much of our show, you know that I'm a huge fan of Leslie Newbigin. I love how Matthew brings him home for our audience. See, if you don't know anything about Newbigin, let me tell you. He was a British missionary to India for about 40 years. And when he returned home to the UK, he saw that it had changed radically. And he realized that the very skills that he had learned as a missionary needed to be used in his own home culture. That's the same thing that Matthew learned in coming back to America. 
It's what contextualization is all about. It is why we need to understand the culture around us so that we can answer the questions that the culture is asking, not the ones that it used to ask like four or 500 years ago. Although we still need to know those answers because they will come back around. Matthew's emphasis on our need to live out our faith to work out the theory in real life is absolutely crucial. We can't show the world who Jesus is if we don't look like him. That's going to mean crossing boundaries and barriers, showing people that as Christians, we are bound together beyond our backgrounds, our race, our status, our gender, or anything else for that matter. Together, we belong to Christ. When we do, the world around us will and does take notice because we are showing them that the love of Christ is real. It's true. That is compelling to anybody and everybody. And that's what our world really hungers for. And it's who we are. Look for the next episode soon when we will finish the conversation with Matthew about the hope we have. And remember to get on our email list. It's the key to let us bless you and bring joy to season. You'll get access to join us for the live Step Into the Light of Church, Culture, and Christmas on Monday, December 4th. You'll be entered into our random drawings for awesome books and Apollos Watered merchandise. And you'll receive our Advent Joy message each week leading up to Christmas. So click the link in the show notes. Now, choosing joy today, this is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.